arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. What's the matter, cat? Did your tongue? I'm not worried, he said. Daddy, you folded like a cheap paper bag. I never saw it. Put a like cork it. in it, Angel. Big goody two-shoes going to be the model citizen. What happened to Mr. Dewey? Angel, you're driving me crazy. Do you understand? I am going crazy. I can't take it anymore. Years and years and years. I'm going out of my mind. You're stupid. Ridiculous. Lies and games year after year. Let me my windpipe. <laughs> look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Don't say anything. Just don't say anything. That was Jim Rockford and Angel Martin. The importance of having exasperating, unique, and unethical louts as ancillary characters creates tension in murder mystery series. Angel Martin, played by Stuart Margolis, is the epitome of these ancillary bomb throwers. Somehow, Angel has an underlying likability, despite his eccentric idiosyncrasies. Here are some of these characters in the Matthias Jones series for Episode 2 of Murder at Toby Lake by Robert P. Fitton. Starts now. Murder at Toby Lake by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 5. Jerry locked the hotel door and walked to his vintage red T-Bird. He checked the small rust spot under the rear fender and then snuffed out his cigarette on the asphalt. The murder investigation kept him flipping through the cable stations during the night. He grabbed the stomach medicine bottle in the glove compartment and swigged the chalky liquid. Working again as a reporter brought back all his stomach problems, but to break this case he needed to speak with Amy Pollard directly. McGill would respect him if he personally solved the murder. He wiped the medicine off his mouth with his compacted handkerchief as he backed around the parking lot and moved on to Hamilton's main street. The police station, diagonally behind the drugstore block, had not changed since he left town six years ago. He lifted his directional signal and jammed his brake pedal, nearly hitting a guy in a red sports jersey. His hands shaking, Jerry slid out his cigarette pack and stuck a new cigarette in his mouth, but he did not light it. Watch where you're going, bub. Jogger. The guy climbed into a green sports car and sped by him toward the beach. Jerry clamped his teeth and steered his car toward an alleyway. He brought the car up to the tiny brick station and took the space next to one of the Hamilton cruisers. Once he was outside, he lit the cigarette, held his notepad, and headed for the screen door. A little bald cop behind the front desk smiled. Can I help you? Yeah, St. Clair, the Enterprise. Oh yeah, Tom McGill's old boss. How'd you know that? You boys got a file on me? Small town, word gets around. Ned Hobbs, what can I do for you? I want an exclusive with that kid in the slammer. Ned smiled. Oh, George should be back any minute. I can't let you go back there. What's the matter? Don't you like the press? I didn't say that. I have power, Ned. Power of the pen. I'm sure your chief isn't going to like a bad report on the editorial page. All I'm asking for is a byline. I'm sorry, Mr. St. Clair. I, I, I can't. Okay, bub. It's your rear end. 
Jerry marched to the door, but turned abruptly as he held the knob. Remember, I know that gun is registered to her. Ned opened his eyes wide. How did you know that? <laughs> I have my sources, answered Jerry, smiling as he opened the door. He was surprised the cop fell for that old routine. Now he had something substantive to print on his front page exclusive in the afternoon paper. Jones slept in late. McGill had yet to call from Maine. He and Strickland would have headed north if Brad Davis was still alive. Instead of breakfast in the woods, he poured an orange juice into a clear glass on his kitchen counter. He headed out the sliders onto his patio table and settled into a metal chair. Wilmont's inordinate attention to Amy Pollard was unusual. He crunched a piece of toast, sipped the juice, and cringed at Wilmont's belligerent attitude. As he scanned yesterday afternoon's Enterprise, an article concerning corruption on the local school committee, written by Jerry St. Clair, was printed boldly on the front page. Accusations were sharp, and a long list of charges were leveled against the chairman of the school committee. What is this? The kitchen phone rang just as he scooped his spoon into the cereal. He sprang up and reached inside the sliders. Jones. Matthias, things are not good, said Nigel quickly. Tell me about it. I should be in the wilds of Maine right now. Hamilton Fletcher has advised me about your late-night conference. It's commendable that the Fletchers have taken you into their confidence. I'm not sure that's all it means. Not many get in the inner circle. Nigel, is there something else going on here? Oh, no, of course not. Who do you think killed Professor Davis? Jones inched his way across the patio and squinted in the late morning sun. I don't know, but I do know that Amy Paula didn't do it. Having Susan Merkel Brown will not be like having L.G. Bentley defend her. Well, you're damn right. That Wilmot is overstepping her authority. Well, the Fletchers are very well aware of that. Good. Sorry about Maine. Perhaps the investigation will be wrapped up soon. Well, I have to check in with Strickland again and go out to Toby Lake. Matthias, please keep me advised also. I will. Jones was still confused a half an hour later when he headed down his front walk while he gazed back at his colonial. The white clapboards had gray mildew spots, and patches of hardened paint had also peeled on the green lures. Along the side of the property, a mass of overgrown shrubs, bushes, and weeds surrounded his rose bushes. He opened up the front gate, knowing as he got inside the jeep he would have to clean up this mess sometime this summer. Before he drove out to the lake house, he decided to see Strickland. The common's tall stone clock tower chimed as he headed for the police station. For a moment, his mind drifted back to his dad. How would Bill Jones approach the Toby Lake murder? The scenario was messy. Too many people coming and going. But two things stood out. He believed that Pollard was telling the truth. But part of forming his scenario involved his close friend. Coco, he thought, was covering for Fiore, even though he denied it. Coco had a great motive for killing the man who busted up his club and brought the police over. Jones needed to talk to Kevin Phillips at the Prince William station. He veered past the drugstore with its old-fashioned counter and chrome stools. The small brick police station was only a hundred feet down the alleyway. His cell phone sounded. Jones. Jones, Froggy. What do you want, Froggy? I've got a few defenses 
this I want to implement this fall. Jones shook his head and his anger surged. Hey, Froggy, get this through your head. You're all done. You will not be at practice. You will have zero input, so get lost. It's a variation on a zone defense with my own individual theories. Aren't you listening? Right amundo. Why don't you go back to wherever it is you came from? He cut the line, but Froggy immediately called back. Jones tucked the phone in his pocket as the ring finally stopped. Then it rang again. He entered the station through the screen door up front. Windows' worn shoes were propped up on a desk behind the counter as he slobbered on the phone. Jones shut down his ringing cell phone and stepped up to the counter as Wendell continued a syrupy conversation. No, baby, no. I'll be in charge once he's in Maine. We'll use the cruiser. Wendell's eyes opened wide when he saw Jones at the counter. He dropped his feet and sat rigid. <coughs> so I'll have to get back to you on that matter, Mr. Smith. Goodbye. Good morning, Wendell. Matthias, uh, what did you hear? Hear what? George is in Prince William at Herbert Lane's office. George tracked down the gun. Great, now we can make some progress here. Well, who owns the gun, Wendell? She does, he said, pointing down the side corridor toward the jail cells. No way. Oh, yeah. Jones sat down and shook his head. That makes no sense. I told you, George is meeting with Herbert Lane as we speak. I think they're going to officially charge her. Jones balanced his chin on his folded hands. I just don't think she did it. How is she doing? She's doing all right. Her parents and sister were by last night. They live in Prince William. They all love that woman attorney. But George is livid about Jerry St. Clair. Jerry? Yeah. He somehow already knew about the gun being registered to Amy Pollard. George is afraid he's going to print it. McGill will have a fit with this guy. And Dr. Wilmot was here. You just missed her. She's not an M.D. Arnie says you two are hot and heavy. Well, that information is false, Wendell. Jones stared at Wendell and shook his head. You know, if I wasn't all wrapped up in this, I'd head down to do his lumber right now and give him a piece of my mind. Then it ain't true? No, I went out with her a few times, and the last time I asked her out, she said no. That's not hot and heavy. Oh, then can I ask her out? Be my guest. As much as Wilmot and Arnie upset him, he was more worried about the gun being registered to Amy Pollard. Get me back there, Wendell. I have to speak to her. Oh, come on, Matthias. George will take the cruiser away from me again if I get caught letting you back there. Listen, Wendell, you know those tickets I got for you last year for the football games? Tell your girlfriend on the phone that you have tickets for the whole season. Girlfriend? Oh, what about basketball? Jones spoke through gritted teeth. Don't push your luck. Just get me back there. George isn't going to know. All right, all right. You will have no contact with my client, said a short woman with perm gray hair and glasses. Her rotund body filled her faded jeans and her gray sweatshirt, advertised a campaign to save a rare bird along the shore. My people are ready to advise her now. Ms. Merkel Brown, said Wendell, standing as if a general had just entered the room. Mr. Jones, I would advise you that my client is fully represented. What about the gun? What about it? It's her gun, said Jones loudly. Merkel Brown's face fell blank. Excuse me? They just discovered it was Amy's gun. What gives? 
That, Mr. Jones, is a very relevant question. Sergeant Harris. Ma'am. I would like to speak with my client again. Her face reflected both astonishment and anger. Yes, ma'am, let me get the key. Jones awkwardly leaned against the plaster walls. Why would she leave a gun there, Ms. Brown? At the same time, apparently wear gloves to hide the fingerprints. I have no comment. I just, I, I just don't know. Wendell, the keys jingling in his hand, moved back into the corridor. Jones faced Merkel Brown again. Can I accompany you to the cell? No, absolutely not. Wendell raised his brows as he passed with Merkel Brown around the corner, leaving Jones standing alone. Jones waddled to the side door and drifted outside. Amy Pollard could have panicked once she shot Davis, but where are the gloves? How could the Nickersons not hear the shots and have only detected a scream? Why was the slider handle wiped clean? Once in front of his house, he climbed into his Jeep, donned his sunglasses, and started the engine. As he shifted onto Shore Drive, he kept thinking about Mrs. Nickerson's logging the license plates. He needed descriptions of the car owners and the wide range of characters associated with Brad Davis. He was fearful of the Fiore crime family as he sped toward Hamilton Bay and did not want to confront them about Davis's death. Maybe the Nickersons could give a full account of the last 24 hours. Chapter 6 Jerry took the unsteady elevator from the second floor. He wanted a cigarette, but the Registry of Deeds in the entire town hall did not allow smoking within town buildings. With a minimal amount of effort, he had found out more significant information about the lake house and the thick-bound record books. As he kicked open the outside door and ripped his cigarette pack from his pocket, he knew the whole town would explode once he branded Hamilton Fletcher as the owner of the lake house and potential murderer of Brad Davis. He grinned, lit the cigarette, and gazed toward Hamilton College's stadium bleachers. I'll nail that old man with a scoop. Smiling, he rounded the town hall's brick facade and trudged under the spreading maple branches up the sidewalk to the Enterprise building. In his thoughts, he composed the outline of an article he would place on page one. McGill would understand this was something big, requiring precise wording and specific changes. He moved up the stairs to the open lobby door, put out his cigarette in the sander, and, and moved inside. He moved up the stairs, opened the lobby door, and put out his cigarette in the sander. And inside the main office, a few of McGill's people worked the computers. Jerry headed straight for the typewriter. Oh, Jerry, said Rebecca, McGill's secretary. Yeah, what is it, honey? Her lips wrinkled. I'm not your honey. Listen, he said, wrapping her arm. I'm going to be busy preparing a page one exclusive. I was going to tell you that Chief Strickland called. He was livid. Jerry took off his hat and sat at the typewriter. Yeah, he'll get over it. He wasn't happy about your tactics with Officer Hobbs and getting the info about Pollard's gun. Yeah, cops always get upset when they get scooped. He rolled a sheet of paper into the typewriter. He's going to be even more upset when he sees page one. He asked you not to print any more information. Isn't that nice? And I have more that's going to make this whole town spin. I have to tell you, when Tom calls, I will inform him of what you're doing to his paper. Well, Tom can still learn a thing or two. Remember, I used to be his boss in Philly. I used to own this paper. Jerry lit a cigarette. I'll have this cranked out in a half an hour. Tell the boys downstairs we're squeezing it in.
This is a non-smoking office. Arrest me, said Jerry, letting the cigarette hang from his mouth. He started the first paragraph. Oh, you are impossible. It's the only way to be, honey. Jones raced quickly over Hanson's Marina's drawbridge. A few hundred yards ahead, the large brown and white sign for Tolby Lake was stuck in the high grass bordering the marshes. He tapped his blinker, downshifted, and brought the jeep along the elevated bluestone road cutting through the marshes. He figured he could travel to the lake and check the trails himself. Although his theory of the killer crossing the lake was not conclusive, he still believed that bringing a boat across the lake provided the perfect cover. A parking area surrounded by a brown rail fence was nestled within the green marsh reeds. He turned onto the narrow sandy road, connecting the marshes and a scrub oak ridge. The monotonous road wound directly through the woods, but the smooth dirt deepened into mud-dried potholes and scattered rocks. He had traveled ten minutes when his cell phone rang. Sunlight flickered through the branches as he pulled the phone from the holder. Matthias Jones. Hey. Hey. Brief me, Jonesy. Paul had owned the gun. Jones was unnerved by his silence. Coco? Set up, he said in a low voice. Why do you say that? Ah, just a lucky guess. Hold on. He heard Coco talking to one of his people in the background. Why? Call Gallagher, in case they bring me in. Why would they bring you in? The line went out, and Jones placed an immediate call to Father Gallagher at St. Bart's Rectory in Prince William. Gallagher's housekeeper said she would get him from church. Jones moved over the knoll, and the blue outline of Toby Lake appeared a few hundred yards through the forest. The area looked less imposing during the daylight hours. Small vinyl-sided cottages dotted their dirt roads behind the pines. To his left, the yellow police tape between the trees flapped in the incessant breeze near the orange-stained lake house. A Hamilton cruiser was parked out front. Jones edged the jeep along the dozen or more cottages lining three dirt roads extending into the woods. He threw back the phone in its holder and stopped the jeep next to a silver box marked Nickerson, painted in black on the metal. Hamilton Fletcher's role within the scenario of Brad Davis's murder bothered Jones as he left the jeep. He rubbed his fingers along the mailbox, pushed open a chain-link gate, and moved up the cement walk. The front aluminum storm door was locked, and he saw no one inside when he knocked. For a moment, he feared the Nickersons might have gone home. Science, what can I help you with? Jim, Kevin Phillips is over Club Max questioning Coco. Why? A professor from the college was murdered at Hamilton Fletcher's lake house yesterday. I'm not sure, but he said to call you in case they brought him in. Not good. I'm at the lake house now. Give me a call back. I will. Thank you. Jones retraced his steps and skirted the chain link fence into the backyard. A long wooden staircase rose along the back of the green vinyl sided wall. He saw no one inside the rear door window. Questioning the flow of people into the lake house was essential to finding the truth. He was about to head down the staircase. Long cigarette ashes were scattered on the pressure-treated boards. Jerry St. Clair. With clenched fists, Jones bounded up the stairs, turned several times, and stared at the ashes. 
He had a bad feeling as he trotted back to his jeep, but he cautioned himself against thinking Jerry was really over there. As he headed toward the lake house, he wondered whether McGill would check in from Maine and stop Jerry from doing any further damage. John Tully stood next to Rick Puntas behind the cruiser under the pines. Tully pointed toward the Nickerson cottage as Jones approached. Matthias, the uh, Nickersons left her in the night. She had a notebook. They gone? Gone. They wrote down Albert Fiore's guy's plate number. See, they must have slipped out last night with their lights off because Wendell was here on duty and never saw them leave. Wendell? He didn't tell me that. Did you boys see an older guy in a wrinkled suit and hat? asked Jones. You mean that creepy newspaper guy? Yeah, Jerry St. Clair. If I do see him again, I'll knock him on his ass. I don't even want to think about him now. Where did the Nickersons go, Tull? Call Concord PD. They're probably headed home. Tully leaned toward Jones and opened his blue eyes wide. Thias, let the state police handle this. It's what they do. You don't want to be messing with Albert Fiore. Jones pressed his lips and thought about Coco. If Fiore ordered this, how would we ever know? What do you think of the girl? Did she do it? asked Rick. No, I don't think so. Jones peered around the lake house and contemplated the possibility of someone entering from the beach area. Besides, we have no prints. We have to wait for what Clayton has in his report. But I like alternatives, gentlemen. Off the beaten track theories, down the side road. Kevin is questioning Coco as we speak. Yeah, I know. Tully ran his fingers through his gray hair and moved the toothpick between his teeth. He had not shaved. What's your side road theory? I don't have one. You guys find anything out back? Nah, a ton of activity in the sand, but we couldn't make anything out of it, said Rick. The murderer could have arrived by boat, but he also could have hiked around the lake. Jones gazed toward the lofty pines surrounding the lake. There must be trails down there by the lake. Maybe somebody drove in, said Tully. I mean, besides a girl. He leaned against the cruiser. Would have to be without headlights because Irene and Gus, the couple across the street, they only saw one set of headlights. Ah, yes, the vanishing Nickersons, said Jones. That must be it. But Paula would have seen somebody herself fleeing the murder scene, and boys, it's only one way out of here, by that road. You got a point, Matthias, but your theory isn't too side road, is it? Listen, if Jerry comes around here... Oh, don't worry about gumshoe gramps. We'll take care of him. Jones grinned. Thanks. Why do I have this feeling he's got something to do with the Nickersons being missing? Can I look out back, Tull? Tully nodded and chucked the toothpick across the sand. Rick, we'll be out back for a few minutes. Take your time. Jones and Tully paralleled the yellow tape under the pines. To the left, the knoll's weathered ledge extended to the dirt road and formed a larger hill beyond. The beach shore road followed the ledge to the water. A few hundred feet around the lake rim was a boat and cabins in a wooded thicket. Vines and scrub brush outlined the lake for several hundred yards and merged with the taller pines and maples up the hill. Somebody might have hiked around the lake, said Jones. They still had the daylight. What about the road? I want to check the exact time of death with Clayton, but it has to be 15 minutes by car back to Shore Road. On foot, it could take three times that. Jones leaned over the police tape. The sand ripples and indentations covering the beach made identification of footprints difficult, but he was more interested in the several long gouges extending into the sand toward the lake house. He immediately thought of the boat near the cabins. The time of year is critical. 
few weeks from now, this place will be packed with cottage people. The Nickersons were the only people up here. Using the boat or a boat would cut the arrival time. The killer could sneak in and sneak out. From where? Jones scanned the distant wooded shore. I need to know if there's a trail across the other side of the lake. Chapter 7 Jones checked his analog watch. His arrival at the marsh parking lot at Toby Lake had taken 14 minutes and 16 seconds. The killer, if the murder was premeditated in his side road theory, would have understood that long before planning the murder, and Jones instinctively now believed the shooting was well thought out. Details were covered too nicely, and a methodical killer would not risk traveling down the dirt road to Toby Lake. The Nickersons had only seen Amy Pollard's Ford Focus pull through the deserted woods and up to the lake house at dusk. Again, he thought about the trails back toward the marina. He stopped his jeep at the marsh parking lot and stepped into the morning sunlight. Behind the log fence, at the edge of the bluestone road, a trail indeed dissected the marsh reeds to his left. The killer could head this way under the cover of the foliage. This trail might provide a more direct route to the lake house. Jones had trouble inserting Hamilton Fletcher into this scenario. Between the reeds, he tried to place himself in the killer's head. Davis's murderer carried Amy Pollard's gun along the wooded trail. But why have Pollard's gun? Maybe Pollard was lying. Jones glanced at his watch as he darted from the reeds into a patch of hemlocks and maples rising above a fast-moving stream. He tripped on an open space between the boards of an unstable, rotted wood footbridge over the rock-strewn waters. Balancing along the sagging boards, some missing, proved difficult, but not impossible. He reached the pine needles on the far side, and for the next eight minutes, the trail hugged the gushing stream. The stream was connected by a weathered concrete spillway to the brilliant blue lake beyond the trees. Jones paused in the sunlight and listened to the water crash on the granite boulders below the cement ramp. His attention was diverted by a darting red form in the birches about a hundred yards away. Zoe Wilmont, on her knees, pawed through the bushes at the top of the spillway. Jones's heart pounded as he carefully hid behind a large maple trunk. Confused, he hesitated, confronting her. For five minutes, she searched the bushes, paced the grass, and finally crossed over the spillway. Not only was Jones curious about her activities up here, but he immediately suspected her in the murder. Yet, she was unfettered at Nigel's party. She raised her hands to her forehead and gazed over Toby Lake. Jones tiptoed down the tapering trail through the bushes. Wilmont continued to survey the lake. Thicker bushes narrowed the trail as he neared the spillway. She put her hands on her hips, but soon clenched her fists as she peered across the water. The wooded shore twisted back to the lake house about a half a mile across the glazed surface. Jones stepped onto the grass along the concrete. You look lost, Ms. Wilmont. She spun around, her mouth open, and her hand shook. What is your problem? I couldn't resist. You think you're real funny. And why are you spreading rumors about us around town? You're dreaming. Really? One of my students said we were about to move in together. You knock it off or I'll take legal action. Wilmont's eyes darted between the lake and Jones. And I suppose you're wondering why I'm out here alone. Well, the thought had crossed my mind, but I didn't see your car in the lot. 
out for a little morning stroll, are you? I'm trying to formulate a murder theory. Great minds think alike, said Jones. Well, you're half right on that one. She crossed the plank over the fast-moving lake water and again scanned the lake. I thought the killer would be able to hike around the lake, but the shore is one big thorny thicket. You been out here before? What's that supposed to mean? Are you linking me to this? She moved closer and her thin lips tightened. I don't need some football coach linking me to Brad's murder. Brad? Another woman is on a first-name basis with Professor Davis. Oh, be quiet. She strutted by Jones, still looking him in the eye, and stepped into the bushes on the adjacent hill, blocking the other shore. Well, why don't you just tell this football coach why you're so close to the girl? I'm not listening, she said, trudging up the hill. Jones crunched the bush branches, maintaining a discreet distance from her as she searched for something. Once on top of the hill, she forded a marshy swamp toward the shore thicket. He cupped his hands. You need some help? She never turned, her clean white sneakers pushing into the muck as she crossed. I don't need your help, Mr. Jones. I know my own limitations. I'm fully capable of making my way through. Okay, suit yourself. Jones studied the sloping land to his right. Although intertwined with the bushes, it was passable and avoided the swamp. He rushed forward, scraping his legs as he hurtled the bushes and as the land sunk into the glen. Determined to beat Wilmot, he scrambled up the other side just as she emerged from the swamp. Her legs were mud-coated and her white shorts splattered with dirt. You! she said, stomping her sneakers on the dry ground. Me! Jones leaned against a maple. Where have you been? Stuck in that damn swamp. Again, let me ask you, have you ever been out here before? asked Jones. She squinted and brushed the dirt off her long legs. I don't have to answer your questions. Okay, then you must know about the gun. What? The gun is Amy's gun. Listen, she didn't kill Brad Davis. Her eyes bounced between Jones and the winding cove leading down to the lake house beach across the lake. Well, you don't seem surprised she owned a gun, like you already knew it. You never give up, do you? She faced him this time and repeatedly pushed her long, dark hair out of her face. Keep badgering until the other guy cracks. Well, fine. <laughs> I'm going back to speak with Brad's neighbors. Forget it. You don't tell me what to do. She started back toward the swamp. The Nickersons are gone. Well, where are they? She asked from the mud. You gonna traipse through that mud again? What about the Nickersons? She asked, moving on to dry land. Where are they? Jones shook his head. I don't know. The house is locked up. Cops are checking their house in Concord. They could be dead. Well, that's a leap. You want them dead? Oh, sure. And I wanted Brad Davis dead. She decided to take Jones's route through the bush and up the hill. I'm just a born killer. Wait, I'm sorry. She stopped and waited until he caught up. Wilmot, why is Amy in the middle of this? I'm sure you know Brad Davis's reputation. Jones peered into her eyes. Someone could have rowed a boat from the spillway. How do you drag a boat through the woods? You've taken the trail. Getting across that unsafe footbridge with a boat is ludicrous. Where's your car? asked Jones. Back on Route 7. There's a trail across the Bluestone Road. She pushed her hair back. So your theory doesn't make sense. Oh, really? What if that boat was taken from the camp near the lake house and left here by the spillway? 
But why isn't it still here? She stared at him, and a coolness swept over him as he again envisioned her as the killer. Something wrong? No, listen. Regardless of how the killer got to the lake house, and I'm just, as you say, a coach and not a ballistics expert, I think some kind of silencer was used. Irene Nickerson would have heard the gunshots. Well, was there anyone else around? She asked, biting her lower lip. Nope, the rest of the cottages aren't open yet. Why are you so concerned there, Wilmot? That is none of your business. She started forward again, and the bushes scraped her legs. Why do I get the feeling you're hiding something? I have nothing to say. She slipped but sprang to her feet and started up the hill. Jones watched her slim legs vault the bushes as her hair swayed over her red jersey. When they reached the spillway, he moved alongside of her. Where are you going now? I don't know. Why don't you come with me back to the camp and we'll check out the boat? I really don't think I want to spend the afternoon with you in a boat, Mr. Jones. If we clock the time in the boat, we'll know exactly how long it would take a potential killer to hike to the lake and row to the lake house. Who cares at this point? And why are you so sure about your theory? Because Irene only saw Amy Pollard's car. So somebody comes in all by their lonesome, yet somebody else killed Brad. Wrong. Amy would have seen any other car. And it takes 15 minutes both ways. Too much time. She would have seen another car. The only other alternative is to cross the lake. Wilmont turned toward the spillway trail. Well, you check it out then. Unless you're in the thick of this, Ms. Wilmont. Oh, you're so clever. Go take your stupid boat trip for all the good it will do. Chapter 8 Jones parked along the cinder block walls of Sal's Grill. He walked around the cedar picnic benches and watched the waves break offshore. Wilmot knew more than she was saying. On some level, he liked her, but she shrouded herself with a pugnacious attitude. He sensed something hiding between the animated black eyes and the gruff exterior. Sal's loud voice boomed from behind the grill as Jones headed inside. Leftover students and people arriving on vacation filled the picnic tables. Green soda pop bottles, red and white boxes of french fries, and the smell of hamburgers sizzling on the grill signaled that summer had arrived. Jones crossed the black and white floor tiles and approached the counter. Sal, apron tied over his jersey, plunged a spatula under the grilling burgers. Jones was about to talk to Sal when Arnie Dewars called out from the table behind him. Hey, Matthias! Jones winced in turn. Arnie and the grubby, muddy Jacobs both waved, and Jones reluctantly walked over to their table. Muddy had a wide nose, as if somebody had punched it flat. All right, Arnie. What are you doing spreading rumors about me and Zoe Wilmont? Hey, aren't you supposed to be in Maine? asked Arnie sarcastically. All I did was go out with the woman a few times. Arnie stood and gripped one of the soda pop bottles. Sounds spicy. Listen, Arnie. Anybody ever tell you your big mouth will get you in trouble? And when you talk to Bucky, you tell him I'm going to crush that little radio of his. The Bucksters just report in the news. Jones stepped up nose to nose with Arnie. Hey, don't get all hot under the collar. I'll let him know. Jones stepped back. You jackasses have nothing better to do. 
too much time on your hands. Arnie turned toward Muddy. Touchy, touchy. Jones grimaced as he turned. I know, I know. Back off, back off. Muddy's gruff voice echoed around the grill. So you nailed Hamilton Fletcher. What? Muddy put on his soiled red Hamilton College baseball cap. It's all over town that you're going to be fired for opening your mouth to the Enterprise. What are you talking about, Muddy? He asked, glancing at Sal behind the grill. Jerry St. Clair got you to rat on the old man, huh? Asked Arnie, pushing his finger into Jones's arm. Arnie, as usual, you don't know what you're talking about. Muddy cupped his hands. Stool pigeon, Arnie, stool pigeon. Hey, I wouldn't admit it either if I nailed Hamilton Fletcher, said Arnie. Just what are you two talking about? Arnie elbowed Jones's ribs. Playing dumb, huh? Old man Fletcher could have killed that professor, said Muddy. No way. Jones turned toward the green newspaper vending machines near the door. What did St. Clair write? <laughs> As if he didn't know. <laughs> Jones dropped two quarters into the slot and lifted the lid and ripped the paper from the machine. He looked at the paper and read the headline. Questions raised by the presence of family patriarch. Hamilton Fletcher bloodied at murder scene. Byline by Jerry St. Clair. Hamilton. In lieu of Professor Bradford Davis's gunshot murder at a Toby Lake house last evening, investigators are asking questions about an afternoon altercation between Hamilton Fletcher, owner of the house, and the murder victim. Sources have told the Enterprise Mr. Fletcher suffered nasal wounds after a violent argument between the two men. Mr. Fletcher would not respond to phone calls and an inquiry at his Fletcher Hill estate. In other developments, Hamilton Police Chief George Strickland would not comment on reports that the murder weapon is registered to Hamilton College student Amy Pollard. Pollard was found next to the gun at the murder scene. District Attorney Herbert Lane will arraign Pollard for Davis's murder this afternoon in Prince William. Witnesses have observed Massachusetts vehicles parked at the Toby Lake House. Attempts to trace the identities of the automobiles are ongoing. Davis was hired three years ago to engage in genetic research for Hamilton College. Matthias Jones contributed to this story. What? I never talked to him. This is unbelievable. Hey, the guy's an ace. He knows how to dig, said Muddy. Yeah, dig his own grave. Where you gonna look for a new job? asked Arnie in a loud, annoying voice. Arnie, shut up. Yay, you're the one who opened your mouth. Jones pulled out his cell phone and stepped back into the hot sun. He dialed the police station and paced the concrete as the line rang and clicked. Ned Hobbs answered the phone. Hamilton. Nettie, this is Matthias. Is George there? He's down at the paper trying to find Jerry Sinclair. The Fletchers are ready to run him and you out of town. Well, I don't blame them. What a dumb headline. Yeah, why did you finger Hamilton Fletcher? I didn't. Well, Arnie says... Jones turned toward Arnie. Arnie doesn't know what he's talking about, Ned. Jerry must have talked to the Nickersons, and now they're gone. Guy is a loose cannon. Yeah, but he's right. What? Jones looked at the article again. What about Amy Polly? George is bringing her to Prince William for arraignment. 45 minutes pending autopsy results. What about that lawyer? asked Jones. Oh, she won't be here till they leave. Really? He looked at Arnie and Muddy back at the table. I'm on my way.
He tucked his phone in his pocket and backtracked away from the fast food restaurant. Jerry had stirred up trouble and Arnie had further fanned the fire. Hamilton Fletcher's role in the murder case was murky and needed an explanation. Not getting results for his investment in Davis directly impacted his company's bottom line. He ran to the Jeep, determined to use his time with Amy Pollard to gather more information. She had lied about the gun and maybe more. He threw the newspaper with Jerry's incriminating story on the seat and quickly pulled onto Shore Drive. Jerry had annoyed him when they first met back in the Enterprise office. As much as he wanted to confront Jerry St. Clair about the whereabouts of the Nickersons, Jones needed more vital information from Amy Pollard. He slowed the Jeep as he drove through downtown Hamilton, signaling before the Main Street buildings, and cut the engine as he rolled toward the station. Neither Strickland's Cruiser or Merkel Brown's BMW were at the station. He exited the Jeep and flew in the side door. Nettie! Little bald Ned rounded the counter and headed down the darkened side hallway. Well, that was quick, Matthias. I really appreciate this. I know this isn't procedure. Matthias, this is Hamilton, not Boston. Jones smiled as Ned led him to Amy's cell. She sat in the corner reading a romance novel. When she saw Jones, she set down the book. Coach, I'm being arraigned for murdering Brad. I know, that's why I'm here. We don't have much time. Ned opened the cell door. I'll keep a lookout out front. Thanks, Nettie. Jones took a deep breath and sat down. He looked into her blue eyes. This gun thing is a problem. You lied, Amy. What could I do? Somebody stole the gun. I knew it was missing a day before Brad's murder. Why would you need a gun? asked Jones. Brad said I needed it. He made the arrangements, but I signed the paperwork. Why? Because of some of the people he knew. Oh, great. Jones stood and paced the cell. I keep hearing about people coming and going over there. In fact, there was something in today's paper. Brad knew a lot of people. Scary people. People from Boston. Albert Fiore? Her face tightened. I can't say. Well, I'm going to need names. What about Zoe Wilmot? You're close to her. Amy nodded. Zoe is my friend. She have access to your apartment where you live? Parkview, off of Shore Road. Well, she has a key. Jones turned from the window. Wilmot had access to your apartment? Did she know you had a gun? Yes. Jones stared at Amy's pale, drawn face. Was the apartment vandalized? No. The gun was in my dresser the day before Brad was murdered. Interesting. Somehow the gun got from your dresser to the lake house rug. That's what I keep telling Ms. Merkel Brown, and I know you think Zoe took that gun. That is exactly what I'm thinking. Parkview is owned by Abrams Realty. They'd be the only other people with the key, and I don't see Marsha Abrams stealing your key. And the more I hear about Davis's reputation, nothing would surprise me. Zoe did not kill Brad. Then who did, Amy? Herbert Lane is going to arraign you in less than an hour. You had a relationship with Davis, and your gun was on the floor. I love Brad. I know he was involved with certain women. She seemed disgusted, yet her eyes possessed an odd longing. He brought me around to those high flyers in Boston. We were on boats and went to the clubs. I'm going to need names and places. Jones raised his index finger. So that's where this is going. Boston, she nodded. We usually sailed out of Hanson's Marina. 
It was always a wild party. Woman, drugs, liquor. And in Boston, I have names. Good. Have you informed Ms. Merkel-Brown of those names? No, but Ellen is so sympathetic. Well, sympathetic isn't going to keep you out of prison. Jones sat next to her again. Tell me about Boston. Lounges, strip joints, all owned by Albert Fiore. I knew it. Brad was involved with Fiore and his people. I'm scared of those people. You think they were involved with Davis's murder, don't you? Yes. How do I find these guys? She shook her head. They all talked about a place called the Glass Slipper in Boston. I never went to Fiore's office, but it's in Boston too, Coach. These people are very dangerous. That was a part of this. I could feel the power. Brad was a part of that power. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. I'll call some people about Fiore, see what I can do. What was Wilmont's relationship to Davis? She and Brad were always talking about something like they knew each other. I need to find Fiore. Don't put yourself at risk, coach. Did you kill Brad Davis? No. Then I will find answers. Chapter 9 Jim, he said into his cell phone, I've called Coco's cell three times. All I get is voicemail. What's going on? Jones hung up and placed the cell on the seat. Strickland's cruiser was parked at an odd angle and blocked the entrance to the Enterprise building. Jones grabbed his phone, exited the Jeep, and rushed up the front steps. He opened the glass door and immediately heard Strickland yelling in McGill's office. Well, I really don't care about you and your damn sources, St. Clair. Where are the Nickersons? You don't scare me, copper. I've taken police harassment for 40 years. I'm not harassing you. Although I should after what you just printed. Who oh, you jets there, bub? I'm trying to get answers about Davis's murder. Jones edged closer to McGill's office. Many members of McGill's staff and Rebecca were listening from the large offices to the right. Strickland shook his finger as he spoke, but Jones did not see Jerry. Irene Nickerson has a notebook with license plate numbers and what else? Jerry answered from somewhere in the office. No comment. Freedom of the press. You're getting on my nerves, St. Clair. You're waiting till McGill checks in. I'll have your ass back to the retirement home. I have a luxury home in Key Largo. Strickland rolled his eyes and saw Jones. Ah, Matthias. Jones crossed the lobby and entered the office. What's going on? Oh, not much. I'm just trying to get answers from Damon Runyon here. Jerry's gray cigarette smoke billowed from a metal ashtray on the desk. Jones moved closer. So where did you take the Nickersons, Jerry? I have nothing to say. There's a girl in George's jail cell about to be arraigned for murder that she didn't commit. Does that mean anything to you? No comment. Jones gnashed his teeth and gripped the edge of the desk. You screwball, there are people involved here who have no conscience. Not my problem. Jones's cell rang, and when he saw Hamilton Fletcher's name on the screen, he declined the call and stuck the phone in his pocket. Do you have the Nickerson's notebook? No comment. Strickland put his hands on the desk next to Jones and leaned toward Jerry's face. As soon as I talk to McGill, I'm going to run you out of town. Jerry pinched the cigarette between his fingers and inhaled deeply. I've seen hacks like you clowns before. Well, you may not have to deal with this hack, but I'm sure that article in today's paper has the Fletchers enraged. See how much fun it is to have Hamilton Fletcher as an enemy. 
Oh, yeah? Jerry exhaled and ground the butt into the ashtray, chuckling as he spoke. <laughs> I've seen hometown heroes before. <laughs> Jones, his hand still on the desktop, looked at Strickland. Strickland pointed at Jerry from a closer range. I'll give you five hours, St. Clair. Either produce the Nickersons or the notebook, or I'm going to lock you up. Jerry's lighter flared, and he lit another cigarette. He inhaled and exhaled quickly. I could take the heat. We'll see. Jones followed Strickland from the office. George, Hamilton Fletcher is on my cell. Strickland led him outside to the sidewalk, and Jones pushed the voicemail. Matthias, this is Hamilton Fletcher. I just read the headline. How did this information get leaked? Heads will roll. Sounds like what he told me an hour ago. I told him I didn't know how that idiot St. Clair got the information, Matthias, but your name is linked to it. I didn't give him anything. Well, I'm sick of the attitude, the cigarette smoke, and the wrinkled suit and that, that little hat. Well, Tom will have him back off. Yes, if he ever calls. And I have other news. The Nickersons never arrive in Concord. I'm not telling him that. Or maybe he already knows. They're missing. Missing? Jones crossed his arms in the sunlight. Well, I have news also. Amy Pollard confirmed the involvement of Davis and Albert Fiore. Strickland's dark eyes opened wide. She never told us that. Herbert Lane needs to know this. Oh, Herbert won't move against Fiore. What about Hamilton Fletcher? He's up to his billfold in this. And Herbert won't touch him either, believe me. They walked down the steps to the sidewalk. So he'll arraign Amy Pollard. She really needs a new lawyer. I told her that, said Jones as they reached the cruiser. Can't believe what she told you about Fiore. She's scared. I know. I'm calling Wendell's uncle, Pinky Harris, at the state police. He knows all about Fiore. These people are dangerous, George. Strickland's phone rang. George Strickland. Yes, Clayton. What? His face flattened. That is very important. Right. Send the reports. Thank you, Clayton. What is it, George? Time of death. Between 4 p.m. and 4.30. Opala didn't arrive until 7.30. Strickland looked toward the Enterprise doorway. That's why they have Coco Stefani at the Prince William Police Station, and why Amy Pollard will be released from my station immediately. Chapter 10 L.G. Bentley, still in a full olive-colored suit even in the warm weather, jotted down the end of a 15-minute conversation with Jones. He folded his yellow pad and placed it in his briefcase on Ned's desk. You know how many lawsuits I filed when St. Clair owned the Enterprise? If we could only contact McGill, we could put an end to the reign of St. Clair. Or at least we can tie him up in court, Matthias. He stood and grabbed his briefcase. I'll fully brief Hamilton that you had absolutely no role in that story. And you can file on Jerry also. LG, I just want him out of town. No more than Hamilton does, except Hamilton wants him ruined. LG, what about Hamilton out at the lake house? LG's gray eyes froze and he pursed his lips. I can't discuss that right now. LG, if he's involved, Matthias, sometimes the legal world looks markedly different than reality. Trust me. Okay, he said as LG shook his hand and said goodbye to Ned. Then he left the station. Jones overheard Strickland on a speakerphone back in his office. He edged his way into the hall. 
a loud barking voice blasted into the hallway. Strickland, I'm not saying don't investigate the Fiori connection. You should know that Fiori can beat any rap. Have you ever heard of Walter Hutton? He's a nationally known attorney from California. Yeah, and he has a team of lawyers to protect Fiori. When you hear about gangland killings, drug running, prostitution, well, it's all true. Where is Fiori? In Boston? He owns the Hightower building. Let me do some legwork. If Fiori's men were at that lake house on the afternoon of the murder, then we need to talk to them very carefully. Carefully? How are we supposed to conduct this investigation, Pinky, if we can't interview people? Don't worry about it, said Pinky, and he hung up. Jones rounded the corner, and Strickland looked up. Did you hear that? Man is a lunkhead. Jones's cell sounded. Hello. Jones's eyes opened wide. Jim, are you all right? Well, I am now. What happened? I don't believe it myself. I was in the cell with Coco. Two thugs burst in from the corridor. They overpowered the guard and broke into the cell. Jones put him on speaker. And they went after you? Well, they rushed Coco, and I let the big guy have it. You hit him? Father, this is George Strickland. Are you all right now? Hi, George. Yes, a little strain in the back, but I'm fine. Strickland's phone rang. Excuse me. Hello, George Strickland. Yes, Kevin. Oh, I heard. Matthias has him on the line right now. No ID. They had to be Fiori men. Strickland looked up. Jim, Kevin Phillips asks if there's anything you need. Kevin says he's certain you're well-stocked at the rectory. Gallagher laughed. For sure. Jim, I'll be over there later. I'll talk to you then. An olive-skinned man with tinted gold glasses stepped into the hallway. He wore a beige blazer and had gold chains on his wrists. His cologne smelled more like perfume. Roland Chance, said Strickland. Why are you here? Who, who is this? He asked, giving Jones a condescending look. I'm Matthias Jones. I coach at Hamilton College. Well, kindly get out. I don't like your lip chance. I am Assistant District Attorney of Prince William County. What are you, bragging or complaining? Get the hell out of here, Jones. Oh, he can stay. Why are you here, Roland? Chance sneered at Jones and stepped toward Strickland. The girl, Pollard, has traces of powder on her hands. Strickland leaped from his chair. Now, how can that be? Davis was hit three times in the chest. Well, how many rounds were left in the gun? Ignoring Jones, Chance faced Strickland. Herbert wants her and Prince William for her own safety. Strickland jabbed his finger at Chance. The man asked you a question, Roland. Chance never looked at Jones. Jones moved around Chance and muscled his way up front. Let me get this straight. Paula didn't show up until 7.30, yet Davis was killed in the late afternoon with a single shot to the head. And Roland, you're telling us that she fired that gun. Look, Jones, Herbert told me about you, and I have to say I concur with him about your aggravating and annoying interference. Where was she when Davis was killed? 
I don't have to answer you, Jones. Well, you have to answer her attorney. Whoever killed Davis didn't drive to the lake because the only people in the cottages, the Nickersons, would have seen a car. <laughs> I think you and that shit-bum reporter St. Clair are hiding them. Jones grinned. Well, at least we agree on one thing. I don't know where they are, Chance. You have investigators, cops, you find them. I will, and if you have anything to do with this... That's enough, said Strickland. I think he knows where his buddy Stefani is. If I did, you know what, Roland? I wouldn't tell you. Matthias, why don't you go over to Father Gallagher? Well, Gallagher may be charged. Charged with what? shouted Jones, furious as he went nose to nose with Chance. Assault and battery. Strickland rounded the desk and separated him from the assistant district attorney. Oh, don't worry, George. I'll leave you here with Roland the Great. Stay out of my way, Jones. I will. I'm allergic to perfume. Listen, Jones, he said as Jones turned and headed out. Oh, by the way, who was the guard watching Coco? Chance said nothing. Oh, let me guess, said Strickland. Kit Bosco. Well, they overpowered Bosco while he was having lunch. Jones looked skyward and shook his head. Well, that must have been real difficult. They probably bought him a latte and donuts. Jones sat in Gallagher's dining room and sipped on a cold beer. Gallagher lifted the wine sifter. Well, I feel a little guilty. It was a time when I was boxing that I could be held liable for my little exhibition this afternoon. Jim, two thugs come storming into that jail cell. I would say you had every right, even within the church, to defend yourself. Well, I hope they haven't done anything to Coco. Gallagher set down the wine. Confidentially, with a capital C, Coco has helped many a kid on the street get his bearings back. People think because of Club Max that he deals in drugs. Not true. And he's funded the St. Vincent de Paul Pantry. Well, I didn't know that. Father, how do I find him? And was he involved in this murder? No, he wasn't. I know that for a fact. That's what he told you? Yes. Then why did they kidnap him out of the cell? He didn't say he didn't know anything. I only asked, but he wouldn't tell me. He's afraid of fury, that's for sure. I've never seen Coco afraid. People tell a priest things that are closer to the heart. True. Jones's cell rang. Excuse me, Father. Matthias Jones. Matthias, it's Kevin. Kevin, how can Roland Chance hold Pollard? So you're saying she came in without a car, killed Davis, and then drove back to the scene of the murder in her car for everyone to see later on. Maybe to cover what she did earlier. Oh, that's weak. Exactly what Dr. Wilmont said. Then I retract what I said. I'm calling you for help. My feeling is somebody came down the trails on foot. Then they used the kayak on the campsite of Tolby Lake to cross the lake. You could slip in undetected. What about Zoe Wilmot? asked Jones. Why Wilmot? She was out there snooping, Kevin, and she's extremely close to Pollard. You know, Herbert talked directly to Hamilton Fletcher. Well, I know the bloody nose story. Herbert believes he's holding something back. You mean he could have sent someone out there to get Davis? And Herbert is diabolical enough to have somebody use that kayak routine. 
Hamilton on the afternoon of the murder. But Hamilton wouldn't have time to think it all out. That would leave Fury and the Stefani abduction. What the hell is wrong with that idiot Bosco, asked Jones. Well, where do you want me to start? He didn't have a gun? Sure he did, but it's hard to reach for your gun when you're holding a Super King salami sub with everything on it. That moron may cost Coco his life, Kevin. I'm not sure that they just might have wanted to get Coco away from the investigation. Trying to question Fiore is an exercise in futility. Let me know what you find out. Oh, by the way, that old duffer, St. Clair? What about him? If you see him, call me right away or talk to somebody at the desk. I'm going to lock him up. We think he's the one hiding the Nickerson somewhere. Oh, I'm sure of it. I'll call you if I see him. Talk to you later, Kevin. Gallagher stood. Anything on Coco? No. Kevin thinks they want him away from the investigation. Jones followed him into the front room. Gallagher clicked on the Red Sox game. He knows something about this. Oh, I agree with that. I may have to go down to Boston and talk to Mr. Fiore. Gallagher put the TV on mute. Albert Fiore is a crime boss. These are powerful men, Matthias. You'd be in great danger. And Coco Stefani, Jim, is my friend. Jones drove into Club Max's parking lot near midnight. He locked the Jeep. To his right, he saw Jerry St. Clair's red T-bird parked in a handicap space. He ran over to the old car, his mouth open, and pivoted to the front entrance. His stomach had butterflies as he walked into Club Max without Coco on the premises. The loud bass pounded as he moved past the dark game to his left. He looked across the colorful bar for Jerry St. Clair. Gabe, white-shouldered and haired, combed back on the sides, quickly excused himself from the rear table. He ran over to Jones up front. Jones, I was going to call you. You heard about Coco. Yeah, I know the whole story, Gabe. Where is he? Gabe took him by the arm and brought him to the booths beyond the dark game. Word I have is people think he's in Boston, but we don't know where. How do you know that? That old-timer. Who? St. Clair. Where is that windbag? Gabe looked to his right. He was doing shots at the bar. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. How would he know that? Asked Jones as he looked around the bar. Well, he said he had sources. Jones exhaled. Gabe, that guy is a class one nutcase. Listen, I think we should go down to Boston. You go down to Boston. I ain't getting nowhere near Fiore. Does Coco know anything? He knows the Fiore connection to the murder over there at the lake. What is it? He wouldn't say. Jones stood on his tiptoes. He caught sight of Jerry at the far end, inside the folding doors to the back room. There he is. Call me if you hear anything, Gabe. Jones moved along the bar and pulled the folding doors apart. Smoke hovered in the air. Five men of varying ages sat around a round table with the dog-faced Jerry St. Clair. Jerry's cigarette smoldering in the corner of his mouth held a fan of cards and moved money to the center of the table. You're all bluffing, I call you. As they folded one by one, Jerry pulled in the money. Cough it up, boys, cough it up. The men pushed back their chairs and left the room. Hey, Jerry, I never put my name on that front page garbage. I'm going to sue your... Haven't you ever heard of press harassment? Two things, you dimwit. Where are the Nickersons? Nickersons? Who are they? He asked, grinding out the cigarette into the glass ashtray. Jones put his hand on the older man's wrist. Listen, pal, you told Gabe you know where Coco is. Barking up the wrong goalpost, coach. Jones flipped his feathered hat off his head, revealing a crop of wavy gray hair strewn with a few black strands. 
I've had it with your dribble, Jerry. If you know where my friend is, and I suggest that you open that flap of yours, which you're so fond of doing, and clue me in. Jerry's dark eyes looked up at him. I'm waiting for my source to confirm. Confirm what? Location. What's your best judgment? Just north of the city, Chelsea, near the Tobin Bridge. Jones was taken aback, even amazed. That's incredible. My instinct tells me you want to hit the pavement, travel to the city blocks, find the man. Let's go. Jones exhaled. Look, Jerry, I don't know how you found this out. I asked the right question of the right people, bub. Okay, let me ask, how does Fiori fit into this murder at the lake? What, are you trying to nix my exclusive? I don't care about your exclusive. Davis, he said, and then he lowered his voice. Had a La Casa Nostra connection. I'll take your word on it, Jerry, he said as Gabe appeared in the doorway. Gabe, I'm going to Boston tomorrow. I'd advise against it, Jones. <laughs> don't listen to him, cracked Jerry, putting his hat back on his head. He lit a cigarette. I'm not going to let a few punks scare me. Punks, yelled Gabe. You're a damn fool old man. Yeah, we'll see when I break this thing wide open. You don't think you're going down there with me, do you? Asked Jones. Gabe put his hand on his shoulder. I'll go with you, Jones. Thanks. Sometime tomorrow afternoon, I'll call the club. Gabe wrote a number on the table napkin. Call me on my cell. Jones nodded as Jerry dumped the table money in his hat. He looked up at Jones. Problem with you, Jones, is you just don't like to gamble. You know what's in this hat? Not much. Jerry St. Clair has a one-dimensional view of the world, which taxes Jones and Strickland's patience, and everybody else he comes in contact with. Arnie Dewis is a regular character who can't resist making snide remarks. Arnie is reckless and always smoking. Jerry St. Clair and Arnie Dewis were featured in this episode. As Amy Pollard assures Jones she did not kill Brad Davis, Jones doubts her story since her gun killed Davis. Join me next time for episode three. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Have a good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.